If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Thursday, April 25th, 2019, which means you're just back. Was it last night that you saw Detective Pikachu? Yes, I saw Detective Pikachu last night in in mm-hmm. L.A., and mm-hmm. yeah, I really, really liked it. I thought it was really good. The ending, the last act is a little, you know, muddled, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's an absolute blast. Okay. This is directed by Rob Letterman, who directed Monsters vs. Aliens for DreamWorks back in 2009 and was the co-director of, of Shark Tales, same studio, back in 2004. And he then began doing live-action stuff starting in 2010. He did Gulliver's Travels for Fox and then Goosebumps in 2015. Now, when you and I talked earlier about this just coming off of the trailers... We were mentioning that it had kind of a Who Framed Roger Rabbit vibe. Did the finished film actually deliver on that? or? Yeah, so the, the movie is set in a city that Pokemon and humans interact with more socially than elsewhere mm-hmm. in the world. So in every shot, there's a Pokemon somewhere mm-hmm. climbing across a building or, or doing something. So it's really neat. The aesthetic is almost Blade Runner-y, mm-hmm. too, in terms of like the kind of quasi-futuristic city. Yeah, I mean, the Rob Letterman of it is the thing that I think holds it back from being like a a great movie, because I don't think he's a particularly gifted filmmaker, but he certainly knows how to integrate animation and live action together. And there's a handful of scenes that I think you're really going to love. But I mean, if somebody like Joe Dante or Robert Zemeckis had done it, I think it would have been a little bit cooler. Okay. And was there a, a particular standout sequence for you or... Um, yeah, so, you know, in this city, it's sort of a more evolved city, and it's a a city that's outlawed Pokemon battles. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Pikachu and his human compatriot Mm -hmm. find themselves in a sort of fight club scenario with Pokemon, and things go awry, Mm -hmm. and it's really pretty entertaining. I think you're going to like it a lot. Okay, very cool. I enjoyed Ryan Reynolds' voice work in the trailer, and the irony is, if you think about Deadpool, that's virtually an animated character anyway, you know, with the mask on. You never see his face in any any movie anymore. <laughs> okay, but 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 it's good because he's so ugly. You know, we gotta we gotta keep that face off the screen. There we go. There we go. Okay. Well, all right. I'm. Uh, this makes me happy to hear that uh, Detective Pikachu g- delivers the goods. Another news that makes me happy though is is Inside Job. Now you were talking about the news on this had just broken. So this is part of Alex Hirsch's deal. With Netflix, and, and again, he signed with them back in August of, of 2018, and it was a, a multi-year deal to produce new TV series and features. And then it was like a month later in September that Shion Takayuchi, is that right? I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And same thing. She signed a deal with Netflix, but she was to develop new series and projects for the streaming service. And... This was significant back then because this was Netflix's first publicly announced overall animation deal 
with the female creator, and evidently uh, Shion and Alex worked together on Gravity Falls. She wrote a, a number of episodes. Yeah, she she's a superstar. Mm-hmm. She already has her kind of Netflix bona fides because she also wrote a number of episodes of uh, Disenchantment, the oh. Matt Groening show. Okay, yeah. and you know, you know, she worked at Pixar for a number of years too. And yeah, you know. I mean, she, but she was on the story crew for Monsters University and Inside Out. The log line for Inside Job makes it sound like kind of a spiritual sequel to Gravity Falls. I mean, this. I agree. I agree. This is what it is, folks. A workplace comedy set in the shadow government where every conspiracy theory from the Illuminati to reptoids is true and one woman struggles to keep the chaos under wraps. And all I can think of when I hear one woman works to keep the chaos under wraps is that this sounds like Mabel Pines after having worked for Grunkle Stan in the Mystery (laughs) Shack. This is what she grew up to do. Right. Well, that's the other thing that we have to point out is that this is an adult animated series. Oh, dear. It's not oh, for kids. Okay. So that I think that'll give it a little edge, too. All right. Well, kind of looking forward to seeing Alex Zabel in more adult material. And likewise, given Chien's resume, this, this, this sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't wait. All right. Now, switching over to the kids' side of the fence, we had news break in the past week that we're getting... A Star Trek animated series. Uh, this is through CBS Television Studios and Nickelodeon. Yeah, and they have a new... Did you see that they have, like, a CBS has a new production shingle for animation called iAnimation Productions? I, I had seen this. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a CG series. Kevin and Dan Hagman. These are the guys behind Troll Hunter and then Jago, the Masters of Spinjitzu. Can't say I'm too familiar with that, but I do love Troll Hunters. Uh, yeah, that, that's good, solid stuff. So, again, we've got a logline here. A group of lawless teens discover a derelict Starfleet vessel and use it to search for adventure, meaning, and salvation. We just had Star Trek Discovery wrap up Season 2 on CBS All Access. Evidently, it was very good. I haven't I watched the first season. I have not gotten around to watching Season 2 yet, but it's gotten high marks from... Trekker friends. We also have the Picard limited series that Patrick Stewart is working on right now. So it's interesting that they're lumping this in. And isn't there also like a Trek comedy series, a sitcom? Yeah, like a workplace comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Every so often I hear about the Chris Pines, Chris Hemsworth Star Trek feature that's yeah, I mean, from what I understand, that's dead. Is it real? That's like totally dead. Yeah, and so now Paramount is trying to sort of reignite uh, Quentin Tarantino's interest in doing that story that he talked about a couple of years ago. But it seems unlikely uh, that we're going to get any big screen Trek. Okay. I don't know if you saw it today, but it looked like CBS and Paramount actually might be merging again, which could open things up for more Trek on the big screen. But I mean, who knows? Not like we didn't see this coming with the the Disney Fox acquisition that everybody's teaming up now, hoping to survive the new media landscape. But I'm old enough to have actually seen the first animated Star Trek series, you know, back when actually ran on NBC on Saturday mornings in 73 and 74 and it was from Filmation, which 
back then was basically animated radio. It, you know, it was a lot of <laughs> right. You know, Captain, look over there. You know, it's like, <laughs> so I'm hoping that this I animation productions the, the CG is a little better than that. Yeah, but again, the original Shiro uh, back in 1985 was done by Filmation, and the reboot that we got last year through Netflix was wonderful. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah, season two is dropping. Well, hell, it's dropping tomorrow, right? The the, the 26th of April. Yeah, do you know how many episodes we're going to get this time? We got 14 the last time around, and this time it's just seven? I don't like that, Jim. I don't like that. Well, but, but now here's the weird part. Noel Stevenson, the, the showrunner, she's the National Book Award finalist. Uh, evidently, when she first went to Netflix with this, she pitched a, a one-season version of Shira, And then as they got into it, she did an interview where she talked about the Shira story team now has mapped out four arcs of 13 episodes each. So that's, that's what? 52 episodes. So we got the 14 we get from season one. We're getting the seven here. That's 21. So there are still stories out there for 31 different episodes. and It's a half hour show too, right? Yeah. Does it bother you that Netflix... Lately seems to be the we do three three seasons and then shut down a show network. Yeah, it's weird because it used to be that, you know, we would joke that Netflix would never cancel anything Mm -hmm. because it just needed the (laughs) it needed the hours of programming Mm -hmm. on the site. And now they're a little more cavalier Mm -hmm. with what they keep and what they don't. If 13 episodes are the arc Mm -hmm. and we've already seen 14, so that's conceivably one more than the first art mm-hmm. and now we're only getting 70 i don't know it, it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense they put out word about the season two renewal on january 24th of this year all right so the the series drops back in november of last year they they do the renewal on the 24th is it just that they only had time to do these seven episodes or uh, i don't know yeah it's weird, but it's a great show. It is. It is. You, you watched the first season, right? We binged them, I want to say, in a day or so, and they were, uh, it had just wonderful left-handed writing. The fact that they were able to deepen these characters and give them, you know, make you genuinely care about, you know, characters like Catra and all that. Right. That was genuinely a surprise. And it's very subversive. It's very, it's got sort of a queer streak to it i agree that's really wonderful yeah i agree and i just love that this show is out there for all of the little girls of the world though speaking of, yes. of things for the little girls of the world i just today got in the mail it's i guess a mock-up of a new picture book that'll be coming out in august it's called disney pencils pens and brushes a great girl's guide to disney animation this is based on Mindy Johnson's book, The Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation. Yeah, which is a great book. An absolutely great book. And it's about to be a Disney Plus TV series. This is the other thing that I find fascinating here. <laughs> this is that material only turned into a picture book. In fact, Lorelai Bouvet, who has done development and concept art for Disney Animation for years. She has created these wonderful illustrations within the book. And and what's great about this book is that they don't necessarily go with the easy names. I mean, yeah, Mary Blair's in here, likewise Mary Costa. 
But at the same time, you have people like Retta Scott or, or, or Retta Davidson. These people that worked at the studios for years and did amazing work. Everybody knows who the nine old men are, but thanks to Mindy, we're now getting all of these women who did and all of their stories. We're getting this ink and paint series for Disney Plus, plus this book that, that frankly is aimed at younger kids. So I just love the fact that, you know, something like this that can sit in a library and inspire a kid to pursue a career in art. Because it's like, I didn't know you could do that job. And, you know, you could become the next Noel Stevenson or uh, Shion. Right. But it's slotted to be published uh, August 13th of this year. And I can't help but think that given that the D23 Expo is the 23rd and 25th of this year, I'm betting we'll see a panel or a presentation or at the very least the signing opportunity there. So, well, I hope so. Yeah. Keep an eye out for this book, folks. It, it, I mean, beautiful, beautiful illustrations and lots of wonderful motivational stories. And when we get back from our commercial break, we're going to talk about one of God, how many years it, it, has Gemini man been? Oh my God. I want to say so many years, uh, at least two decades. There we go. Okay. We'll get to that when we get back from our break here. <laughs> Before we jump into talking about Gemini Man, Drew, you were mentioning you got to the last Van Eaton Gallery event. That was Richard Kraft's... Uh... Yeah, Richard Kraft's crazy That's from Disneyland mm-hmm. auction. It was insane. And I'm glad you were the one that told me to go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I went. It was insane. But they always have great stuff at Van Eaton Gallery. And it's very close to my house, too, which is very cool. Is it really? Okay, well, you yeah. you definitely have to head there on May 4th, because they've got a brand new auction ramping up right now. It's called The Art of Entertainment. They are selling some absolutely crazy stuff this time around. I mean, if you're a 20,000 Leagues fan, you can get the anamorphic version of the Nautilus. It was, in fact, this bizarre little stubby version of the Nautilus that they figured out that if they shot it widescreen or shot it uh, with a normal camera, then shot it widescreen, it would then look the way the Nautilus does in the rest of the movie. That's crazy. There's concept art in here from the black hole. But for animation fans, what's really cool about what they're doing this time around is artwork from uh, Yellow Submarine. We've got... Do you already have the catalog? I am am holding it in my hand right now. Wow. And they got from Bill Wallen... All of his early concept posters for The Secret of Nim when they were trying to figure out, you know, land on a look to how to sell this movie. Same sort of stuff for An American Tale, Land Before Time. And they have this amazing poster here that it's signed by a crazy number of people. It's Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Charles Fleischer, Kathleen Turner. They even went out and got Frank Sinatra's signature because they they have that one little clip of witchcraft in this thing. Oh, and he's the singing sword. Yeah. And yeah, I don't even know how they got Spielberg. Mel Blanc. Didn't Mel Blanc die before Roger Rabbit came out? All of these people. Don't ask questions. I, I probably shouldn't. But anyway, that's on May 4th. On the other hand, if you prefer to watch your history rather than own your history... You can head over to the Hollywood Heritage Museum. It's on Highland Avenue. 
I, in the Lasky DeMille barn, it's right across from the Hollywood Bowl. They moved the DeMille barn there, I want to say, in 85. It got made a, a historical designation by the state of California because it, it turns out it's the oldest continually standing building for film production. I guess the very first film that was shot inside of the thing was shot in 1912. And then... Wow. Eventually, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and those folks used it as a production facility as well. But, I mean, it dates back to the earliest days of Hollywood. And, and now it's it has this amazingly funky collection of Hollywood history. And they also do these, these events there. And on the night of uh, May 8th, they're going to be holding a celebration of Max Fleischer. You, it, it's good. The amazing cartoons of Max Fleischer, they're going to be showing... Betty Boop cartoons, Popeye cartoons, and Superman cartoons, which brings us to our, our next transition point. It's fascinating to look at the Fleischer Superman cartoons and think how far we've come, especially on the heels of, of Avengers Endgame, which you got to go to the, the actual premiere, which I, I think is very cool. Yeah. It was very cool. It was very overwhelming. Mm. It was at the Los Angeles Convention Center. It was, you know, it was crazy. Mm. But I had a great time. I loved the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was awesome. It really does sort of strike home the, the amazing age we live in. When you think about, if you look seriously at Rocket or the unified Hulk, these are really animated characters. I mean, yes, I know there's motion capture and that sort of thing. But face it. Off of the performer on set wearing the markers or the gray suit or, or whatever, there is some poor animator, you know, some poor effects guy who is sitting there working off of that raw footage and refining that performance. Right. This film, what, a three hour and two minute runtime? If you factor in the amount of animation, you know, whether it's effects work or, or, or again, you know, these performance capture things that then have to be finessed into an actual performance. There's at least as much animation in this thing as your standard Pixar film, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially when you pack... I mean, we don't want to talk about spoilers yet, mm -hmm. but there are other characters that pop up mm -hmm. that are fully CGI. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's baffling how much effort it took. Mm -hmm. From ILM and Digital Domain and Weta and all the companies that worked on this movie mm -hmm. to, to get it done. When, at the industry screening, did everybody stay in their seats waiting for the scenes, or...? We didn't have any credits on our ah, So, yeah. Okay. So everybody stayed put. Yeah. Okay, because that's... We, we, got the, we got the kind of, like, Star Trek, the Undiscovered Country signature mm -hmm. thing at the end, but that that's it. Okay. All right. Nancy and I went down to Boston to catch a screening, and there's 10 or 15 minutes worth of credits, and everyone dutifully sat in the theater... The lights came up and it was no end credit scene. There was this sort of laugh that rolled through the room like, I'm an idiot. You know, I stayed. <laughs> well, I mean, we've been trained to do that for 10 years. So, you know, why stop now? Well, but here's the thing. As I'm walking out and talking with the, the publicist for Allied, she mentioned that they had just had memos come across their desk that Sony has, in fact, prepped a scene that will help set up uh, far from home. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's one of these things where it's like, oh, damn. Now do I actually have to go back? And you want to go back? I, Shut up. I, I, I <laughs> probably do. I probably do. 
And you know, if you go back, you might see a trailer for uh, Gemini Man. This is this true. This is true. And and that brings us to Gemini Man is such a hard project to talk about because it's so intertwined with Disney's Secret Lab, which was supposed to be this thing that was going to help Disney get away from Pixar and be able to do its own CG stuff. And they did do Dinosaur as sort of a proof of concept that, look, Disney can do CG movies and just not entertaining ones. Gemini Man was going to be the project that was kind of the ultimate movie movie in that it's a younger version of a hitman who's been cloned from an older hitman who's who's basically been hired to take the guy out it has a you know wonderful hitchcockian you know story potential and standing outside of this thing you know and everyone who read the script said it's an amazing script but how the hell are we going to do this and and the interesting answer at least back in the mid 90s is well you have to pick somebody who's had a long enough career that there's footage out there of the younger version of that actor that we can then repurpose to do battle with the older version. So initially the wish list for this project was people like Sean Connery and Clint Eastwood. And then over time, they have like, well, wait a minute. If we look at it, Harrison Ford and then Mel Gibson, the secret lab got far enough along on uh, the Mel Gibson version that they actually created a piece of test footage that they showed to Disney where it was basically Mel Gibson from his 1982 movie, The Year of Living Dangerously, interacting with Mel Gibson from the 1999 version, uh, his movie Play uh, Payback. It was done seamlessly, and it was one of these things where it's like, wow. But it's like you had to literally pull all of that footage of the year of living dangerously and erase the backgrounds and then be able to drop the younger Mel Gibson believably into a scene with the, the payback version of Mel Gibson. Weren't they at one point thinking that both characters were going to be completely CGI also? Isn't that where that test footage came from? Yeah. That, well, well, that was the thing. You know, how much time we spent in the editing suite to just pull off this 45 seconds, 50 seconds of test footage. You know, first of all, there isn't enough Mel Gibson footage of that era. You know, you're going to have to help us out here. And so, yes, they began investigating the whole idea of, of CG replicating. And I also think it's funny they brought in people from Walt Disney Animation Studios from that period, which if we've seen Chicken Little and uh, those other things, uh, and even Hunchback we were talking about last week, the CGI is like the worst part of it. You know, it's it's interesting to me that they brought those those people in, too. Isn't it interesting now, you know, Freeform is doing one of those Toy Story marathons. So you get right. Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, and Toy Story 3 back to back. And you're watching the original Toy Story, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I mean. Yeah. To look at it, a 1995 animated CG film today with the eyes now. I mean, especially on the back of even just the footage that's out there now from Toy Story 4 and, you know, yeah. how much more nuanced and, uh, you know, the, the sub-level scattering and, and that sort of thing. It's strange. It, it, looking back at that stuff, 
it doesn't hold up all that well, but because the story is so well told, you can overlook this sort of stuff. Not a problem with uh, Chicken Little. Though. <laughs> well, I have this tendency to grade in a curve with Chicken Little because of of Gary Marshall. <laughs> I love his performance in it, and I think Nick Granary did some amazing work with Buck Pluck during this same period. This is when they were walking not only the uh, Mel Gibson test that we just talked about, but uh, I think you were referring to the the Hoyt Yateman test where they get yes. the live actor. The facial, what is it called? The facial test? Yeah. And yeah. I want to say Cartoon Brew has a, a wonderful piece up about this right now. But but man, you, you look at that test. And, and again, you know, it's a test. It's But it's still far enough off that you're like, oh, yes, you made the right choice. Don't go forward with this. But to, to think about this, it took that script got written and was making the rounds from like, what, 95, 96? Mm-hmm. And it's taken us over 20 years to get to the point where they think they can pull off this film. And I think you were talking that one of the only reasons, for example, that they were able to deliver a convincing young Will Smith is they had all those hours and hours and hours of fresh Prince of Bel-Air to reference. You know, you noted that the script has been rewritten by Billy Ray and Andrew Nichol and David Benioff, who, you know, co-created Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. and and all this stuff. And and then it finally landed on Ang Lee Mm -hmm. is directing it now. Yep. And and Weta is doing the uh, the effects. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're far we're far away from the special lab, but it's a fascinating story of trial and error. Oh, absolutely! And when you think about what he accomplished with the CG animals and and that sort of thing in Life of Pi, but to circle back to what we were just talking about with Toy Story from 1995, just watching it the other day, and it was one of these things where it's like. We're far enough along and things have, well, again, I'm, I'm sitting here right now looking at uh, a, a piece of artwork for Detective Pikachu. And, you know, when you look at a picture of Pikachu himself and how wonderful the fur is and, you know, the, the, the eyes and the design, and you buy that this is sort of the Venn diagram from the cute plush to the real creature that has to go around right. that world. If you sit and watch Life of Pi right now, the tiger, which looked great in 2012, is kind of shaky now. Oh, really? Well, there's just enough stuff that doesn't land like a a real animal. And face it, we are in, you know, a 4K world now. And it's just like, oof. Well, speaking of 4K, you know that Gemini Man was shot in 120 frames per second. Really? Yeah. Holy cow. And it'll be projected 3D and 120 frames per second. So. Wow. Do with that what you will. Yeah. Okay. On your side of the fence, again, given, you know, all the interviews and that sort of thing you've done with the Light the Fuse guys, have they ever talked about that sort of thing? Because didn't Brad Bird shoot the scenes in Dubai? Dubai. Yeah. Were, the, were those, those were things? in IMAX, but were. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were just in IMAX, not. not there was not a higher frame rate, but okay. it's funny because the, we interviewed Eddie Hamilton, who edited the last two movies, mm-hmm. and he was at Bruckheimer, and there was this beautiful painting on the wall that Ang Lee had done for Gemini Man, and he's he was the one that was telling me, oh, they're they're editing it in 120 frames a second. I didn't even know they had shot it like that. Wow. So it's going to be really interesting how that comes together. 
you remember what happened with Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, right? Uh, oh, I was there in the screening in New York that made everybody sick. Yeah. Okay. And that was only 40 frames or something, I think, or 60. Yeah. Knowing the stories again associated with, with the, the first Hobbit like that, that's really brave of, of, of Ang yeah. to decide to go this way, especially within an effects films like this where you you have to have a CG Will Smith sitting next to a real live Will Smith. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> okay, well, we have a couple of months yet from for this one. This is August 11th, 2019, I want to say, when it's coming out. October. October. That's October, my mistake. Yeah. October. And in between that, <laughs> we get Will Smith as the genie. Lucky us. <laughs> well, look, you saw the second trailer, or, or the, the, the full-blown trailer after the teaser. And yeah. That was better. Sure. There we go. Okay, there's there's a confident noise, Drew. Yeah, there we go. Okay, circling back to to light the fuse. What do, what have we got coming up now? Uh, we got some good interviews. We talked to another uh, Oscar winner mm. last week, which I think I teased a little bit. But uh, Charles had his baby this week, so we're uh, we'll still have episodes coming out. But we we've kind of calmed down in terms of the of reaching out to people. But really good stuff. I talked to a guy this week who. Mm. Is very excited to be on the show, and will be you. You will be very excited to, to hear him on the show. Okay, so cannot wait. Yes. cannot wait. Yes. Are they still proceeding with the plan to shoot the next two back to back? And isn't that they are? Yeah, I think there's going to have to be some kind of break for Tom to do publicity for Top Gun Two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's all it's all happening. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. Can't wait. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my side of the fence. Uh, let's see. We got. Disney Dish with Len Testa. In fact, we just recorded a brand new show of that today. Uh, we also have the Marvelous Disney podcast that I do with Aaron Adams. We got... Um, I Want That. I Want That, with, that. With, with Michelle Valladolid. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And we have... Looking at Lucasfilm uh, with Danzi again, you're my my best friend, Danzi. There we go. Yeah. Is it true that the two of you are not allowed back into Chicago? Yes, it's true. Okay, there's there's a story there. We'll get that eventually, <laughs> folks. Um, anyway, if you could do Drew and I a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only this show but also Light the Fuse. But if you like really like what we do here, subscribe to Bandcamp, which helps support the all the shows we're doing. That does it for fine-tuning. We'll be back with a new show next week sometime. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine-Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.